0: National Day for Truth and Reconciliation is more akin to Remembrance Day, a time where we have acknowledged that there have been terrible losses both to individual families and to our collective society, and that we have promised to remember, that we have promised to learn from past experiences of tremendous loss and trauma, and that we have pledged to go forward in new ways.
1: That's Marie Wilson, former Commissioner of Canada's Truth and Reconciliation Commission, talking about the first ever National Day of Truth and Reconciliation, which is coming up September 30th. She's our guest on this episode of Explore, a Canadian Geographic podcast. I'm your host, David McGuffin. Welcome back to Explore. This is an important episode. It's about the legacy of residential schools, so it's also a potentially triggering one. There is a crisis hotline for survivors of residential schools and their families, and that number is one 925 4419 and it operates 24 hours a day. So September 30th marks the first ever National Day of Truth and Reconciliation here in Canada. It's a federal statutory holiday. It's a moment to reflect about the brutal impact of the residential school system. Hundreds of thousands of First Nations, Inuit and Métis children were forced to attend those institutions from the 1830s to the 1990s. And the impact of that has resonated through families, communities, and generations. This holiday was the direct result of the 94 calls to action from the 2015 Truth and Reconciliation Commission report. Our guest today, Marie Wilson, was one of three commissioners on the TRC, which began its work in 2009. In that role, Marie and her fellow commissioners crisscrossed the country listening to heartbreaking testimony from residential school survivors. Stories of mental, physical and sexual abuse the children suffered as part of a system run by churches and government aimed at forcing Indigenous children to integrate into white society. Or as one official bluntly put it, to kill the Indian in the child. Before becoming a TRC Commissioner, Marie Wilson spent decades working at the CBC, including at CBC North where she transformed that service into one that better serves the people, languages and cultures of the North. She's also taught at McGill University and she spent time in South Africa training journalists as that country emerged from decades of white minority rule. We reached Marie at her home in Yellowknife in the Northwest Territories and you'll know it's Yellowknife. Because of the float planes you'll hear buzzing overhead from time to time during the interview. Think of that as an embedded version of Kangeo soundscapes. And definitely do stick around after the interview for the actual Kangeo soundscape. We have a special one this episode, brought to us by Perry Bellegarde, the outgoing National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations. And now, on to our interview. Marie Wilson, thanks so much for coming on the Canadian Geographic Explore podcast.
0: Really glad to be here. Thank you.
1: So we're here discussing, amongst other things, September 30th, which is the first ever National Day of Truth and Reconciliation in Canada. And I guess, first of all, I'm just wondering what that day means to you and how you plan to mark it.
0: What the day means to me, on a very practical level, is the realization, specific realization of one of the calls to action from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission report, and our 94 calls to action this being number 80 and an important one of them in the bundle of calls that have to do with commemoration so i feel satisfied as i do um, when we see a measure of progress on any of our calls to action knowing that they imply a huge amount of ongoing work and some things that seem simple are complicated by processes and by politics occasionally and by a lack of understanding of the depth and importance of certain ones, and sometimes by active resistance or lack of political will. So I feel really glad and happy that this achievement has happened and that there is actually going to be a national day for truth and reconciliation, and not just a national day, that it is declared a statutory holiday. What I feel about it on a more of a spiritual level, which really is the more important one, is that as one of the three commissioners of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, uh, we went across the country in our efforts for six and a half years altogether and heard from thousands of former students of those residential schools that were in place in Canada for well over a century. And we heard version upon version upon version of what the overall general experience was, that rupture from home from family, from community, from culture, from everything that was familiar, including often one's own siblings, even if they were in the very same school. And therefore, the negative association with school, the negative association with the start of the school year, the negative association with having to leave home yet again, because some of these children were away for the full year cycle for eight months, 10 months, and some of them for multiple years at a a time. So a very negative association with the season of rupture, if one might call it that. And for most of them, that was September. Um, It was a a very, very um, sad month for them, not the kind of excitement about going back to school, new classmates, new teachers, Absolutely the contrary for the vast majority of people that we heard from. And so to have that um, better understood and to have vehicles in our national calendar and in our public places that help us understand that and continue to learn about that, I think is extremely valuable. And that's what the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation represents for me an achievement of one of our calls and an honoring of the 80,000 former students who were still alive at the time our work began, and the 150,000 who went through the school system, and the countless hundreds of thousands of children and intergenerational survivors who are still in our midst and still living with the legacy of the schools.
1: Mm-hmm. And you talk about the spiritual aspect of it for you. I mean, how so how do you think you'll be marking the day?
0: It's a day of reverence for me. I had opportunity to speak to the parliamentary committees that were put in place to study this proposal and to consider its implications and its merits. And one of the things that I, I stressed with them, because it was an initial suggestion that it be kind of rolled in with National Indigenous Day, which we already do mark on the summer solstice on the 21st of June. And the point and the comparison that I made I hope effectively, but certainly more than once, is that if we think about the national calendar we have in Canada and the days that we commemorate, National Indigenous Day is more akin to Canada Day, to July 1st, to a day of collective identity sharing and celebration. National Day for Truth and Reconciliation is more akin to Remembrance Day, a time where we have acknowledged That there has been a great loss, that there have been terrible losses, both to individual families and to our collective society, and that we have promised to remember, that we have promised to learn from past experiences of tremendous loss and trauma, and that we have pledged to go forward in new ways and to keep not only ourselves informed of that, but to invest in informing our children uh, of that and our families. And to invest in newcomers to Canada, so that they will have a vehicle for uh, knowing the more fulsome history of Canada that most of us were not taught growing growing up here as children. It is also a day that I think allows for gathering, for collective outreach and support. And so, in terms of what I myself will be doing, this being uh, the first of the National Days of Truth and Reconciliation, uh, I will be contributing in a small way to some of the educational outreach activities that are in the works through the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation. And that's going to be outreach uh, through uh, thousands of schools, tens of thousands of school children across the country will be be, um, reached through those initiatives. But I also um, may very well not be in my home community on that day. Um, And where I'm going to be exactly, I'm not yet sure. I have a number of competing demands uh, on my schedule, and I have to figure out um, how our big geography works, how the COVID-unfolding pandemic um, gets in the way or not of possible travel and so on. But chances are I I will be somewhere in Ottawa or I may be somewhere in... uh, the Alberta area, or I may be back home here in Yellowknife.
1: You mentioned your work on the TRC and listening to testimony.
0: May, may, I, may I just say, David, one thing I know for sure, though, is that wherever I am, I, I will definitely be in the company of residential school survivors. Um, that's really, really important to me. And um, I, I I want that to be able to do that because they are at the focal point of what this honoring is all about, um, but also to make plain and to and to give expression to my own pledge to to help in our country's onward work of of remembering and honoring this day and 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 these courageous children who have taught us so much in the past few decades of their storytelling.
1: Yeah, and I mean, you spent several years, as you say, crisscrossing the country and hearing stories—heart-wrenching stories, heart-wrenching stories I mean, brutal stories. And we've just been through a summer now where there's been hundreds and hundreds of unmarked graves found at former residential schools. And I'm wondering what those, I mean, I think we discussed discovery isn't the right word because people knew they were there. But what was the finding of those graves like for you as someone who was a commissioner on the TRC?
0: Well, you know, my first response was actually not as a commissioner, but rather you know, as a, as a mother and a grandmother and uh, as a family member and just the, the deep grief at that sense of uh, enormous loss, but also a tremendous sense of, um, um, I'll say, sad validation Um, That what we had been hearing throughout our years as uh, commission and what we had reported in detail in volume four of our multi-volume Truth and Reconciliation Commission full report and what I personally, as a mother and grandmother commissioner, had said in my own closing remarks at the end of the commission, which was very heavily focused on the children and the unfinished work and the work that we still had to do uh, to find the children and to do our best to identify them and to uh, find ways to bring their spirits uh, to peace, but also to bring their families to a sense of of redemption, I guess, but also comfort at at least knowing that that the children were being found um, and that their voices were being heard. So I felt that tremendous mix of things, but I also felt uh, that same irritation that I always feel about how long it seems to take us to do these urgent and critical things. Um, That if we had a living child today, and we've seen it as recently as this fall, as recently as a few weeks ago, when a child appeared to be missing and where were they, and were they with their parent or not, and were they in harm's way or not, and the red alerts that go out and the, the national attention that gets focused on that. And yet when we have thousands of children who are lost and who have been said to be lost and where it has been pointed out that there's ongoing work to find them. The tremendous um, frustration and and outrage that goes along with that, that these children have not been prioritized um, and and a small encouragement that that maybe now they will be, um, that, um, that maybe now because it is the children themselves in a way who have spoken up that maybe now we will be better able to listen. I think we owe it to each other to keep our attention span long and not short and to um, keep our hearts wide open on this work and to stop asking the obstacle questions like, why don't they just get over it? If there's anybody that does not yet understand that it is not yet over, there is still so much unfinished work and there is still so much devastation in our midst then that is just another example of people choosing not to pay attention. And so I, I hope that, and that was part of what I felt in a funny way, a kind of desperate hope that, that maybe now, once again, we will at least widen the circle of those who are paying attention and that we will at least um, um, crack open uh, the hearts of those who absolutely did not know, whether that was young people who were not old enough to be paying attention as, as the facts of the TRC were unfolding, or whether it's people who have come to Canada in that time frame. Since then, we know there have been many. There's always a possibility of widening the circle, and that's always uh, the possibility that I try to latch on to and, and see how we can move forward with it. It's, it's really the role and purpose of a national day as well.
1: Mm-hmm. I, I love what you're saying there too about the, their voices are now being heard, and I'm wondering what their message is to the rest of this country. These voices coming from these graves.
0: Well, it's an interesting question that I imagine is individually pondered. I would think the the question that children would have had as their dying thought is, does anybody love me? Does anybody remember me? Do I matter to anyone? And so I would hope that there would be room now for some of those little spirits to be be thinking, I see that you never stopped looking for me. I see that you are beginning to hear me. I see that you are still seeking to find me and all the many others. I mean, these are profoundly spiritual questions. In terms of social justice and in terms of the big work of reconciliation, they are questions that point to the ongoing moral obligation and legal obligation of our country to do what's right, to own up to not just the mistakes of the past, but the crimes of the past, and to do what we can to shed all possible light on that to bring the potential for healing to as many of the directly affected families as possible, and to do all that we can together to move forward in a way that is worthy of the reputation that Canada always wants to claim for itself, um, both to itself internally and to the wider world. And I think we have a lot of ongoing work of humility and honesty uh, on that path. And, um, and I think, uh, sort of come back to wh- where are the children in all of this? They're, they're leading, they're leading that confrontation, and they're leading that introspection, that forced intros- introspection. And I think they're leading and animating that new dialogue that's emerging.
1: Do you think non-Indigenous Canadians now get get it as in terms of what happened with residential schools, what happened with you know the overall? policies towards First Nations and Indigenous people in Canada?
0: I think some get it and have already proven themselves over many years to be very true and faithful allies. I think some are beginning to get it. I think a lot are waking up to it and are still at the phase of thinking, isn't it terrible what happened to them without registering what happened to them in many ways was us was us as a society, us with our superimposed laws and policies and institutions and attitudes, most importantly, and lack of accountability in the specific examples that we have before us in the story of the residential schools. So I think, I think it's a trajectory. I do not think there is an answer that applies to non-Indigenous Canadians. I think there are many answers there, just as I think there are many answers for Indigenous people, I think many are in a place of outrage and, and having really great difficulty budging from that place to a, to a place of, of, of hopeful possibility. But there are others that are leading the charge on that in their own communities and in, in their own circumstances. And there's no right or wrong in that, just as there was no answer in any aspect of the work of our Truth and Reconciliation Commission. We, we have the challenge of taking people where they're at, whether that is Indigenous and non-Indigenous, but we have the shared responsibility of keeping each other awake to these issues and not allowing the tune out or the zone out. It, it has to stay alive. I think, I think the very fact that we've had in this ongoing and unfolding election, reconciliation as one of the five, I think it was, signature issues that Canadians asked for the leaders to um, be compelled to speak about, that is movement. And I think a, a huge part of that is owing to the children who, who rattled the country awake in a new way this summer. And although many had been working in the field and continue to be, that uh, sparked new engagement on that issue and forced people to uh, pay closer attention. I think that's a positive thing. The challenge is always putting tangible action to uh, beautiful rhetoric.
1: Hi, I want to take a short break from this interview to plug our sister publication, Canadian Geographic magazine. It is truly one of this country's great magazines. I subscribe and I love it for both the amazing articles about this country and the photography, which is always stunning. The September-October edition boasts a cover feature by Alana Mitchell exploring the fate of endangered caribou herds across the country. The always popular annual geography quiz is in this edition. There's a map insert. Don't you love maps? I do. It's a map of ocean innovations. And there's a collection of reviews of new fall books. There's a story. By Adam Schultz about the focus of his new book, and there's an excerpt from Thompson Highway's forthcoming novel. A subscription is only $28.50 for a year, or $55 for two years. That gets you both the print magazine and digital access, and subscribers become members of the Royal Canadian Geographical Society. There's a nice bonus. Go to cangeo.ca forward slash subscribe to get your subscription. It takes just a minute to sign up. And now, back to our podcast. So there were 100, about 150 residential schools. Um, and it seems only entirely likely that we're going to find more on Mark Graves. And I'm just wondering, I mean, you spent, as we discussed, a lot of time hearing firsthand accounts of suffering in residential schools or experiences in residential schools, which must've been difficult for you. And I'm wondering what advice, I mean, how did you protect yourself emotionally doing that? And what advice do you have for people who are searching for these graves in terms of protecting themselves emotionally and managing the fallout?
0: Well, I think it's very important that we um, stay connected to each other. Isolation is a brutalizing factor and I think that, you know, one of the things that we really benefited from during the work of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was the wisdom of those who crafted our mandate and among the things they insisted upon was that there be culturally appropriate health supports available to the survivors and to all of the steps of the settlement agreement process. And as it evolved, those health supports also became vital to the commissioners themselves, to our staff, um, and to the many, many um, thousands of non-Indigenous Canadians who also attended um, and bore witness to our activities. I I think there was an underestimation of what volume of human support would be necessary, which is why, among other things, we talked so specifically about the need for a continuation of health supports and designated healing centres, among the things that we called for, both in our interim report where we talked about that very specifically, but there's a whole section in the calls to action that are about health as well and need for uh, changes and improvements in the healthcare system. And and that includes um, preparation and retention of people who have specialization in these fields. And I know there've been some fantastic initiatives, grassroots-level initiatives that have unfolded since that time. Uh, So that's one thing, is know where those resources are, plan for their involvement from the beginning, and make sure that you have access to them. And then I think everybody has to also very consciously ask themselves the question, what is their own personal self-care plan? Because the first thing uh, to do to protect yourself is to have one. And if you haven't thought about that or don't know what that is, that's a really good place to start. Because it would be like going into a contact sport arena and not pausing to say, I wonder if I need any specialized equipment for this. And I've said many times over, reconciliation is not a spectator sport. It is a full contact sport. We need to be engaged with each other. But we also have to realize that there is invasiveness that goes on as part of this. Um, And and, and and it's important that there is, that we are invading our senses, our previous senses of complacency and knowing and security and self-righteousness Um, And um, that whole sort of father knows best attitude that is a real hallmark of of, um, colonial states where things get imported from elsewhere with an assumption, an easy assumption that that's the best answer for where you now are as well. So there's a need to equip yourself knowing that there'll be some some hits and some aggressions along the way that hit you at the level of rethinking and re-experiencing and re-feeling. Things that can that can rattle, but that can also open up and allow for new ways of seeing things, and new ways of being with each other, and new ways of talking to and about each other. So we need to equip ourselves well for all of that to make sure that we that we don't chicken out after barely getting started, that we don't bail out saying, "Wow, this is really hard. I'm out of here." That we fortify ourselves for how to how how to be with each other for the big work. And that we really come to, I think, lean on each other and uh, respect each other in ways that are mutually supportive and and can be mutually supportive. We certainly had lots of examples of that uh, during the commission.
1: You you talk about sort of the big work that still needs to be done. And I mean, there are, as you mentioned, 94 calls to action in the TRC report. One of them is this National Day of Truth and Reconciliation. Um, I'm just wondering where we stand on getting the other ones through. I know other big ones have happened like the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People, but what, what more needs to still happen and what should be the next ones you would like to see pushed through?
0: Well, I'll say two things about that. And one is that I really applaud and, and lift up the many, many, many positive examples of good work being done in every region of the country. Um, We were, and, and that relates to one of the points that I want to make, which is that we were very intentional in issuing our calls to action, that they were not all directed at government. Many of them were directed at civil society or at professional organizations or at academia or at sectors of professional life, such as social work and education and medicine and the law and the business and media. And and the sports and athletic community and new Canadians, you would be hard pressed, I think, that the philanthropic community as well, you would be hard pressed, I think, to to go through the calls to action and not see where you fit in there somewhere. And most of us belong several places. We may not be a teacher, but we may have children in the school system, and therefore we are a teaching advocate. Uh, but we are all citizens, and therefore we are advocates of what we expect of our governments uh, when people are running for any level of public office. So we were intentional about that. And so I know that a lot of good work is being done in all those sectors. But to the second point, one of the areas that I think is really missing, and we talked about it last December when we issued our joint statement as commissioners um, on the five-year anniversary point, of the release of our full, our full report of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And that is that we do not yet have in place a National Council for Reconciliation or indeed a National Strategic Plan for Reconciliation that shows how all of these calls to action will be done in a strategic multi-year kind of way. None of us ever expected this would all be kind of snap of the fingers done in a in a week in a week or two or a month or two or even a year or two, but if there is a game plan that makes it plain that everything is on the list and on the strategy for moving forward, and that there is attention being paid to it and time and space being given to it, that would be very reassuring. And the national council would have as its primary role helping us as a country to keep our eye on that big picture so that it wouldn't be me knowing of some great things that are happening in some places, but having no vehicle for knowing what all else is happening and where is that happening, and how might that be used to inspire other people? How might that be used to offer lessons learned on what worked well but what worked not so well? and what were the factors for that and, and can we do more of those good things and can we do can we do less of those things that prove not to work or can we really deploy extraordinary resources to those places whether that's sectors of life aspects of life or whether that is in fact areas of the country where there is a real paucity of a resource or of potential or of capacity and where tremendous uh, deployment of human and or financial resources is really needed. Can we do that? And I'll, I'll use as an example, the issue of boil water advisories and drinking water. We don't specifically talk about that in our calls to action as a specific call to action, but we do talk about apprehension of children for reasons um, that are articulated that often really boil down to poverty. And one kind of poverty is not having the basic means for life. Accommodation, security of food, security of water, which is life itself. But I would like to know who, including uh, any sitting prime minister, can tell us exactly where are those communities that are still missing drinking water. What vehicle or what tool have we established for not only tracking that, but for making it publicly known so that people who may have ideas about how they might contribute, or indeed where they may want to apply particular political pressure, or where they may want to call upon the expertise of their own core of engineers that live in their region to say, let's make this one go away. What can we bring to that? And we don't even know where they all are in any easily accessible way. And so we're all kind of making best efforts without um, having a shared map of what is the focal point right now and where are we getting better and can we celebrate that? Can we actually feel good about those things that are being done well and things that may be getting better because otherwise we always end up pot-shotting at all the things that are still wrong and that are still missing. And indeed they do need prioritized attention, but we need tools in place to help us uh, know how we're doing as a country. Um, That's a very long-winded answer to say, the whole point of the National Council for Reconciliation was to have a vehicle to help us keep a big eye on the big picture to celebrate when we can, to hold ourselves up to an honest mirror where things are still not only possibly not good enough, but possibly even getting worse, and then to exchange wise practices and inspiration back and forth and up and down and across and throughout our very big and complex country, which very few Canadians actually get to know and experience in its entirety. We live within our communities, and some of us have had the good fortune to know the whole country but most of us have known parts of the country, and in some cases, a a tiny little piece of a great big country. So we need help with that. The National Council should be seen as a priority, and it has not been. And that's not news, by the way. We've been saying from the very beginning of the release of our report, we need that in place. And at the five-year anniversary, we repeated it as an urgent issue.
1: So I know you've spent a lot of time in South Africa, and there are certainly a lot of parallels to how South Africa in the apartheid era treated their indigenous people and how Canada treated our indigenous people, including, you know, not the right to vote, pass laws and no legal counsel and lack of citizenship. And they had a Truth and Reconciliation Commission as well, very famously under Desmond Tutu. And I'm wondering how much you were, as the TRC here, able to lean on them or learn from them
0: Well, I think there are distinctions, first of all, and very importantly, um, because people hear Truth and Reconciliation Commission and right away the example they think of is South Africa. Uh, I swear there are people in Canada today, if you say Truth and Reconciliation Commission, will think of South Africa and not even realize yet that we had one in Canada. Um, And there are a few reasons for that. Um, To your question, yes, indeed, we did look to and look at South Africa, Um, but so did those people who crafted our mandate. We received our mandate, and it was a collaborative piece of work from the survivors who basically fought to have a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, the churches who were taken to court by the survivors, and the Government of Canada who were taken to court by the survivors. And those all became parties to the settlement agreement. And uh, because it was an out-of-court settlement agreement, they worked together to um, craft the terms of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. um, And and the survivors fought for that TRC in Canada to be one of those terms of settlement. Um, There was a lot of resistance to having a Truth and Reconciliation Commission in Canada from government and from the churches. So right there, you have a big difference from South Africa, because that Truth and Reconciliation Commission was set up and established as a gesture of intentional political will by Nelson Mandela as the first president post-apartheid of South Africa. Ours was not a government-sponsored Truth and Reconciliation Commission. It was a court-ordered Truth and Reconciliation Commission. So that's the first huge difference. And people went into it in a way with their brakes on. And when I say people, I mean the government and the churches. They were kind of unwilling on that one, but it was a make or break issue for the settlement agreement. And we we were not there as commissioners at that table. We've been told that many times over by those who negotiated the settlement agreement. We've also been told many times over that for survivors, our TRC for them was the most important part of their whole settlement agreement because it was their opportunity for their truth to be told and to be heard. Ours was post-judicial, as I've said, very different from South Africa. But what that meant is we did not have the power to subpoena witnesses. We did not have the right to pay people compensation or any kind of financial redress. Other elements of the settlement agreement offered nominal amounts of money, but our TRC had nothing to do with money or financial settlement. And we actually spent a lot of the first year having to explain and re-explain and re-explain that. Our TRC first and foremost, and really at its core was about education. It was about gathering, recording, and documenting the most fulsome record of the residential schools that we could, and that included This unprecedented oral history, which was based on the statements we gathered from some 7,000 survivors. The second thing we were tasked with doing, and I'm speaking broad banner here, was to educate all the people of Canada about its own history. And the third thing was to inspire reconciliation. And it specifically said in our mandate ongoing reconciliation. Well, South Africa's was really. it was an alternative justice process that did allow for people to be subpoenaed. It did allow for amnesty to be sought and granted. It did allow for financial compensation, but that part was very different from our process. The reason we looked to it, though, very importantly, of course, it was the first really big high-profile one in the world. It invaded the world's consciousness because it was so widely publicized and I remember um, as a working journalist at that time watching when hearings would be in place daily uh, capturing of the day's events and the hearings and the details of the hearings on television. In Canada that became the potential was there for that to be a collective shared experience because of the nature of the media at that time. And one of the biggest differences between our TRC and the South African TRC was time and timing. Theirs happened before social media, before really the the World Wide Web became normalized, when everybody gathering around the same television set for the same primetime programming and the same primetime news shows became um, part of the, the, the national glue for any society, including here in Canada. Um, And we were in a different time. What we wanted to do, though, is what South Africa had done, which was to try to find a way to grab the attention of the whole country and to rivet the attention of the whole country. And that was a big and ongoing challenge. And I think the very fact that people have been rattled awake again this summer with the affirmations of what so many survivors told us about the children and the burial sites and the unmarked graves... It speaks to both the importance of the media and sharing that information, but also the failings of the media in the new media world to tell the same story to the same people all the time. It's one of the reasons why we sought consent at our hearings to to broadcast, if I can put it that way, on the World Wide Web, uh, our hearings. That was our way of trying to reach as many people as possible. And indeed, we reached internationally internationally. And then the other piece that I would say is that our TRC, unlike the South African one, and unlike any other in our world's history, really, came about because the victims, the so-called victims of harm, fought for it to make it happen. The victims of harm were children. So it was about harms that had happened specifically to children and to children of a specific ethnicity. And all of those things made it completely unique. It was also important to note that it was paid for, and we always uh, so noted this, though it was paid for with money that came from the government, it was not government money in the sense that it was part of the settlement agreement before the courts. And that settlement agreement was accorded to the survivors. And in that way, the survivors used part of their court winnings, if I can use that crass phrase, to pay for their own Truth and Reconciliation Commission, they allocated part of the monies that would be identified as part of the settlement to be used towards the establishment of a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And I think those are all the kind of layer upon layer upon layer of uh, courage that we saw demonstrated by the survivors of residential schools in Canada.
1: It's fascinating. Thank you. You've been very generous with your time. I don't want to keep you too much longer, but I have one last question, which I ask all of our guests, and it's um, a favorite place in Canada that you can describe. Is there a place that is your happy place, is a place you might go to mentally in times of difficult times or a place that gives you a warm feeling that you can describe?
0: Do you know that's the privilege of my life, that I don't have just one. I've lived in four different jurisdictions of this country. I've lived in the extreme southwest, southwestern Ontario, which is one of the most southerly parts of Canada, on par with uh, northern California, which a lot of Canadians don't realize. I've lived in the extreme northwest on the Arctic Circle, and I've lived in French-speaking Canada. I've lived in English-speaking Canada. I've lived on the prairies. I've lived in the center, and I've traveled and worked out of every single jurisdiction. I know this about our country. Every place has its deep beauty of place. For me, far more importantly, its deep beauty of people. And the two go together. And if we were to listen humbly to the indigenous peoples of this country, we would know that our folly has been in trying to separate those two that people and place go together and that land and the stewardship of the land and the interrelationship with the land is what is truly essential for our, our ability to have a future together. And it is how we have to start thinking about our favorite places. That they A place is not a standalone thing. A place is an integrated part of an interrelationship. That really is when people say all my relations or as they say here, we are all family, all of us. So my favorite place is all of that, lucky me.
1: (laughs) It it just reminds me of, I think what I hope we've learned in the pandemic is the importance of community and the importance of our attachment to the land as well. Hopefully this is one thing we've begun to learn.
0: Yes, but I'm saying it goes beyond attachment. It's interdependency. It is respectful interdependency. And that's the piece I think we're still in kindergarten on that point.
1: Marie Wilson, thank you so much for coming on the Explore podcast.
0: Thank you very much.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode of Explore. Stick around for Kangeo Soundscapes, which will be coming in just a second. But I first have a big, big favor to ask. If you like this podcast, if you like this episode, could you take a minute and please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this and give us a five-star rating. And also, it would be a big bonus if you wrote a glowing review, like really lay it all on. I know this sounds like a bold ask, but the way the algorithm works for podcasts, this is the single best way to ensure that we reach more listeners and that this podcast can continue to thrive in the months and years ahead. So thanks so much for considering doing this for us. It means a lot. And now, to Can Geo Soundscapes where you, the listener, send in audio or video clips of your favourite sounds recorded somewhere in this great land of ours. This week, our soundscape comes to us from Perry and Valerie Bellegarde. Perry has just wrapped up his last term as National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations, and Valerie is a leading activist and advocate for Indigenous languages. They've sent us something very appropriate for today's episode, an honour song performed by the Wild Horse Singers in Treaty 6 Territory, southern Saskatchewan. Enjoy. Hey, 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 ah. hey And you can take part too. You can tag us with your favorite Canadian sound using the hashtag CanGeoSoundscapes or you can tag us on Twitter or Instagram at CanGeo or you can do it the old-fashioned way and email us. Our address is explore at canadiangeographic.ca And before we go, I want to take a moment to remember Gilles Gagnier, a dear colleague who passed away last week at just 51 years old. Far, far too young. Sheil was Publisher of Canadian Geographic and Chief Operating Officer of the Royal Canadian Geographical Society. He was a big supporter of this podcast and most of the forward-thinking projects that have gone on at CanGeo and the Society over the past 20 years. Working with him, it was always clear that he had an explorer's vision. He was always about finding the best path forward. He will be missed. We at Explore send our sincere condolences to his family and loved ones. That's it for this episode of Explore. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, when we'll explore again, I'm David McGuffin. I think
0: right now we're enjoying very much looking back at the earth and it's just a, a fantastic experience and I just
1: can't wait to get back and start telling you... We have time. Simpson about June 10th with a fire brigade consisting of a number of yacht boats, each manned by 10 voyageurs.
0: For us in U.S., it means that in oral history is very strong. We flew low over every inch of the country that it could be. We're hoping that he would fire at it. I guess 160 rides or so. There are shrimp fish
1: swimming around outside. It gets just fabulous here. Well, I'm a first for Canada.